It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, May 27th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Deal or no deal? And even with a deal, will enough members of Congress accept it? Where do we stand on a debt ceiling deal? And what will it take to get done and avoid a default economists warn could be devastating? They pretty much, unless something comes together very quickly, they are past the June 1st deadline. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. U.S. money to assist Ukraine may dry out this summer. Is more money on the way with a Republican majority in the House? A new aid package may have to wait. A large percentage of this has gone into uh, modernizing and replenishing our stockpiles. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. As many Americans set out for a long weekend, traveling to the beach, enjoying time with family, and honoring America's fallen service members, many will have their bank accounts at the top of their minds, and it's not just because of their holiday spending habits. That's because even with a deal from the White House and House Republicans, there are still plenty of roadblocks to lifting the debt ceiling. Throughout the weeks-long negotiations, both sides have held a hard line on many issues. Republicans like Chip Roy of Texas demand spending cuts to curb the national debt, closing in on $32 trillion. But we are defaulting on the American dream every single day that goes by, where we continue to spend money we don't have to fund the bureaucrats at war with the American dream. While progressives have raised concerns about those spending cuts proposed, with progressive caucus members like Chairwoman Pramila Jayapal pointing the blame at Republicans. And it's on the fact that we have a Republican Party today that is trying to use this moment and is willing to crash the economy. With the June 1st deadline quickly approaching to avoid a default, Fox's senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram joins to look at where everything stands. Well, we think that they've gotten an agreement generally on spending. Uh, that, that obviously is what this is all about. It's about spending. And there's going to be some sort of an agreement on, uh, you know, the levels that will look like a cut to Republicans, but they're going to get an increase in defense spending, which is something the Democrats don't want, obviously. Uh, the thing that they are still trying to work out is how much of the IRS's, uh, you know, extra enforcement measures, the extra money that was given to the IRS, can, can the Republicans claw back? You know, this is a term we hear a lot here in Washington right now. And there's still a dispute about the uh, the work requirements. So this is kind of where we, we are. If you don't have actual pen to paper as to what the framework is. And you might remember that Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, said last weekend that he wanted a framework then. So here we are into the next weekend, uh, you know, unclear just exactly how this is going to go. We could get a deal or something could fall apart at any minute. But the general plan is, and they hope they can get this into, into an agreement and get this into legislative form in the next several days and prospectively bring the House back uh, middle, looking more like toward the end of next week now. Uh, you know, the, the House was scheduled to be out of session this week for Memorial Day. I thought it was pretty interesting that Republicans, of course, Republicans are in charge of the House of Representatives. Uh, they had no compunction criticizing the Senate which is run by Democrats, uh, for taking the Memorial Day recess last week and then don't have any problem about them going away this week so they could beat up the Senate. I'm shocked, shocked that there's politics here here inside the Capitol. (laughs) Uh, 
Uh, but well, the Senate will be back then. And so we might be here next weekend with the House either considering this or this gets into the Senate. And this is all presuming that this is a blue sky scenario and they can get this done rather quickly. But that's past June 1st. Right. And they're going to have to vote on this almost immediately to avoid that June 1st deadline. And, and, and ultimately, they still need to have the votes if they're going to get an agreement to be passed. You know, where do we Well, see- Kevin McCarthy says they're not going to vote on it immediately. He says once we get it into legislative form, we're going to take three days. Uh, Now, that is the House rule to give members uh, the time to do this. And this is where a lot of people think that we're already past the deadline. You know, we always talk about uh, summer starting June 1st. Well, you know, meteorologically, it doesn't really start until uh, June 21st. Uh, We are in legislative June right now, if early June was the deadline, according to Janet Yellen, the secretary of the Treasury, to get this done. And and does the weekend and does a holiday count as part of that 72 hour that that McCarthy is yes, pretty much committed to? The, yes. Yes. Once they get the actual paperwork, the clock starts to run. And I will say this, that, you know, if they find that they need to get a certain number of members and need to change the bill somehow, they will change the bill. Now, technically, that goes against the 72 hour rule. Uh, you know, we, we used to joke about this, the Republicans back when they ran the House starting in, in 2011. They said they had a, a 72-hour rule, but we learned that it was the 24-hour and two-second rule, meaning that the text just had to be available for parts of three days. So now McCarthy is really going to adhere to this. But just a few weeks ago when the Republicans passed their own debt ceiling package, uh, they made some changes in the middle of the night. Uh, that they regarded as technical changes uh, so they could get Midwestern lawmakers on board. They didn't like some of the ethanol provisions in the bill. This was something that was very important to members from Minnesota and Illinois, Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin a little bit. Uh, And so they changed that in the middle of the night. But again, the idea here is that the Democrats used to do this all the time and the Republicans would just absolutely bray about this. Oh, how dare they change the bill in the middle of the night? So if they feel that they need to get uh, some changes here and, and change the bill. Once they've gotten this into legislative form and we're through the three-day window, guess what? They will change the bill. And, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, who could be defecting from this and who could, could pose a challenge to getting this passed. But I think we should probably talk about the 72-hour rule real, real quick because this was something that uh, I believe some Freedom Caucus members were very passionate about. I know Rand Paul in the Senate has been passionate about uh, something similar to this for years where yeah, I think there's a, a frustration where uh, Congress uh, introduces a bill and it gets, you know, put on the floor and passed very quickly with a lot of pages on it. Uh, it, it and, and McCarthy has seemed pretty Uh, committed uh, to honoring this since he's been speaker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, this is where Mike Lee, the Republican senator from Utah, has said, based on what he's heard, uh, he will use every tool he has in the Senate to slow things down. You know, it just takes a senator or two to slow things down in the Senate. It doesn't work that way in the House of Representatives. And that's why a lot of people are starting to worry that we're already past the 1st of June deadline, early June. Uh, Because even if you get this out of the House, you know, in the next seven days, you know, that's past June 1st, you still have to deal with the Senate. And even Kevin McCarthy said that might take a week. Now, how do the markets react to that? And what is the realpolitik? Well, you know, Ryan, you and I talked about this a little bit off air here. I came across something very interesting from the Bipartisan Policy Center. And what they did is they did a pretty detailed analysis, the daily cash flow analysis of what they believe that Treasury will have on hand This is what the federal government has on hand in the pockets and what the outlays, what the expenditures are supposed to be. So the estimation 
by the Bipartisan Policy Center on June 1st is that the federal government will be down to $21 billion in revenues. There are dozens of billionaires around the world at that point who have more money than the U.S. federal government. Okay, so $21 billion, I mean, that is, you know, lent in your pockets to the federal government. Now, according to the Daily Outflow, and this is just on June 1st, due and I'm not real good at math, but, but I know that $21 billion is not the same as $101 billion. So the daily outflow that Treasury is supposed to spend that day is $101 billion. So they are $79 billion in the hole already based on that, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. Medicare expenditures that day, $47 billion. Veterans benefits, $12 billion that day. Military pay and retirement, $10 billion. Civil service retirement, $6 billion. Supplemental security income, SSI, as we call it, $5 billion. That's on day one. I know that's a lot of stats, but it changes, you know, as you get a little bit further down the way here. Look at, at the 2nd of June. Well, we're down to $13 billion. Well, you might ask, well, how did we go from, you know, $21 billion to $13 billion, but we were supposed to spend $101 billion? Well, the reason is that Treasury still has money coming in the door. And Treasury might decide certain things to pay and certain things not to pay. And this is where you get into a constitutional question here that it's supposed to be up to Congress having the power of the purse to determine, you know, what is spent. On June 2nd, so we're down to $13 billion. Again, this is the analysis by the Bipartisan Policy Center. The government is expected to pay out $40 billion in spending that day. $25 billion in Social Security benefits, $2 billion to Medicaid and to education programs, $1 billion. So that's kind of where... You look at this at this money and these outflows, and this is where the federal government gets in real hock real fast because the ledger does not work out unless you've agreed to have more borrowing, which is what the federal government does. You see, you raise the debt ceiling, and so they can continue to get this line of credit to get money coming in the door to pay all of these obligations. And what does that ultimately mean for the prospects of a default? Uh, and Yellen has been pretty consistent about saying that June 1st is the deadline for, for when this could really be a problem. But she's saying it could start to be a problem well before that, too. Well, you know, she said early June, and I've spelled out on two days right there, where the federal government is spending a lot more than what it has on reserve. But it doesn't have the money to spend on those programs. That, by definition, is a default. All right. And, and, and so... What do we kind of make of, of, of what the next steps are here in terms of what wings of the party could could pose an issue for McCarthy and Biden, d depending on what agreement they ultimately come to? Obviously, we've had you mentioned Senator Mike Lee before. He's come out and said that th this would be the first time he's willing to vote for a debt ceiling uh, increase. But there have to be spending reforms involved with that. And I've asked J.D. Right. Vance, the senator from Ohio, uh, what would be a deal breaker for him? He said he wouldn't go into it, didn't think it was appropriate. But, you know, are there some fiscal hawks out there who could pose an issue as well as some progressives? So too? Senator Vance wouldn't say to you he wouldn't go on the record as to what he wanted to. to is yeah, that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You see, and that's where I think I think some lawmakers uh, are afraid to comment on what they think actually might happen or what they'd be for or against because they don't know the contours of a deal. And it's easy to say that you're against a lot of spending. But I've laid out here all this spending, military benefits, Social Security benefits. I mean, left or right, most lawmakers up here of both parties, if, you're, if you were to say people are not going to get their Medicaid and their Social Security and their military benefits, would you vote to raise the debt ceiling? But when you frame it in the context of, oh, we're going to spend more money, 
And never mind that there are people, their constituents, uh, you know, Senator Vance is in Ohio or wherever, that they're not getting uh, that spending. Uh, you know, they're not benefiting from those programs. That's a problem. But to answer your question, Ryan, the members who are going to be hard to get on this are on the margins, on the left, on the right. Look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who has said, you know, why should the Republicans come to us unless our priorities are reflected in this bill, meaning the Democratic priorities? Why should we carry the freight for the Republicans? That's the vulnerability for Kevin McCarthy politically. You know, this is a speaker who went through 15 roll call votes before he became the speaker. It took, you know, parts of five days there back in January, the longest speaker election since 1859. And so some people, again, depending on how you, you calculate this, some people view that means he's a pretty weak speaker, frankly, Ryan. And if you're going to put a bill on the floor that doesn't have a lot of your members for it, what's a lot? Well, I've been told he's going to lose anywhere from 20 to 40 minimum on his side, and that number's probably lower. You know, so you get down, you eliminate the most conservative, uh, the old Tea Party wing, certainly the Freedom Caucus members. And then you get the most liberal members uh, who aren't going to vote for it, too, because let's say, look, there's more defense spending in this. How do you find that that sweet spot somewhere in the middle? And that sweet spot somewhere in the middle, potentially, Ryan, could be pretty big. I mean, if you're down, say, to 150 Republicans and you get, you know, 100 plus Democrats to vote, you know, you might put up 260, 270 votes on the board in the House. That's a pretty robust vote in favor of something. You're not, you know, eking this by with one or two votes, but it's probably going to be those people on the left and the right. And I talked to someone very senior in the House Democratic leadership apparatus, and we were talking about, you know, I said, how many votes could the Democrats be uh, compelled to, you know, to bring to the table there? And they said, we don't know because we don't know how many of the Republicans will jump. And once you get this bill out there for 72 hours, okay, we're going to come back to this. This is going to be really important. Ryan, as you know, there's an old expression that uh, house guests and fish start to stink after three days. <laughs> you get that bill out there for three, three days, which gives people time to read it. And maybe people start to say, oh, I don't like what's in that bill. And all of the Republican or a lot of the Republican support disappears. And the Democrats who are in the minority in the House say, well, we're not going to support it if the majority is not going to support it. So that's where the problem lies. Does that make President Biden kind of an X factor in this? If he ultimately has an endorsement of whatever agreement they come to, is that is that going to be enough to get enough Democrats on board to ultimately get this passed? It is. And, and you know, will his word have weight if he picks up the telephone and calls members uh, and says, I need you to vote for this? You know, I talked about the perceived weakness by some of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, look at the president's poll numbers. Uh, you, you know, you know, he is not exactly FDR or Bush uh, 41, who at one point was at 93 percent, even though he lost, uh, you know, reelection just a, a year and change later. You know, so there's some people who don't think that maybe that they would get that that call from the president in this environment would help. And, and especially, you know, when you're talking to liberal Democrats who, you know, they kind of look a little bit askance at, at, uh, at President Biden. Uh, they did not like the fact that they did not get as big a social spending bill through that they wanted. Uh, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which a lot of people think was terribly misnamed, but it was basically the social spending bill that they pushed, got it through, but it wasn't what a lot of liberals wanted. Uh, they have not gotten uh, D.C. statehood. You know, we can go down the list, something bigger on firearms, uh, you know, something bigger on health care. 
um, you know, we'll go down the police reform, we'll go down the line. And therein lies the rub for President Biden. How much sway does he have with those liberal Democrats? And you know what's the other X factor on the Democratic side of the aisle? The new Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. This is not a knock on Hakeem Jeffries, but he is not Nancy Pelosi. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi was the speaker or the minority leader, if she needed to get the votes, she could just get the votes. It just goes without saying. We don't know that yet about Hakeem Jeffries. We tend to think he is not the second coming of Nancy Pelosi. And again, I say that, you know, there's, that's not a knock on Jeffries because Nancy Pelosi was just so good at that. That's what she did. She would get precisely the number of votes she needed on every single bill, sometimes within just a one or two or three vote margin. Jeffries is untested in this area. But have we seen enough of a sample size of him so far? Because we have seen on a lot of these the, the votes that do come up in 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 the House, and uh, we've seen Democrats for the most part stay united on on a lot of key issues. Certainly, there have been some like the 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 solar provisions in the that that President Biden was trying to get through, and ultimately, yes. uh, you saw uh, Democrats and Republicans in some cases unite to to try to to repeal that. But have we seen enough to see that he could unite Democrats if, in fact, you have a hot button issue like this? Well, some of that is because they're voting against something. Uh, they're voting against something that they view the Republicans as being so far to the right or so extreme on something, it's easier to get that unanimity. Here, no matter what, you're going to have a divided Democratic caucus, and that's going to be tougher. Who is going to be willing to take it on the chin? And how do we feel, and, and Jeffries was kind of pressed on this uh, earlier this week about, during his press briefing about, should President Biden had ne have negotiated sooner mm -hmm. with Speaker McCarthy? And, you know, we did some research ourselves and, you know, uh, President Trump was willing to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi. He was willing to negotiate with Leader Schumer, uh, even when Republicans were in control uh, of all branches President of Congress. Oh, yeah, President Trump, I don't think he really negotiated with Nancy Pelosi. Famously, when they were trying to work out infrastructure, uh, you know, they shoved back from the table. There were a lot of verbal barbs traded. Uh, it was obvious that this was oil and water. What happened in those cases is that the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, was deputized by President Trump. And he and Speaker Pelosi got along and were able to work out some, some agreements there. Ultimately, President uh, Trump at the time signed some things after he had blown up other things. I remember the government shut down several years ago. They thought they had a deal. They voted in the Senate, and then he decided in the middle of the night to veto it. So, uh, you know, it, it does. Th this is another important factor. We've not talked about this, Ryan is that the, the, the principles and understanding the idiosyncratic factors between the members, uh, just not the members of Congress, but we have new people at the table here. I mentioned, obviously, Jeffries. He's not as much at the table in this. This is Speaker McCarthy, President Biden, Garrett Graves, a Republican from Louisiana, who's the lead negotiator. Uh, probably the most senior negotiator in these talks is Steve Reschetti. Uh, who has been with uh, President Biden as a counselor. He was his chief of staff when he was uh, the, the vice president, was a deputy chief of staff in the Clinton White House, a guy who really gets things. But again, a lot of these, these are new names. Patrick McHenry, this is a new face at the table, the chair of the Financial Services Committee. So all of that weighs into this, you know, do they trust one another? Kevin McCarthy has spoken nothing, uh, given nothing but effusive praise about all the negotiators, even the Democratic negotiators here, but can they get a deal? What else are we missing here, Chad? I think the main thing to look at here in the next few days is time. They pretty much, unless something comes together very quickly, they are past the June 1st deadline. 
and just how quickly can the Senate move. There's three scenarios. They get a deal. They move it through the House late next week, the Senate the following weekend or the weekend after that. That is blue sky. The dark scenario, the dark sky scenario, is that they just can't get a deal. And here, Monday, Tuesday, we're sitting around and they still can't get a deal. The darker sky scenario is that President Biden and the Speaker get a deal and they cannot sell it to their respective parties. That's the problem. So many moving parts here. and We really appreciate you kind of uh, breaking it down for us and simplifying it for us, Chad. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. I enjoyed it. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Earlier this month at a Senate Appropriations Subcommittee hearing, Republican Senator Susan Collins pointed out the U.S. is about to run out of congressionally approved Ukraine aid. After last December's large aid package got through Congress with about $36 billion pledged to help the country continue to fight Russia. It is critical that the administration provide Ukraine with what it needs in time to defend and take back its sovereign territory. We expect the administration not to wait until the 11th hour if the Ukrainians need more before the end of the fiscal year. Since then, White House officials said they will not ask Congress for more Ukraine aid before the end of the fiscal year, which is the end of September. And during a briefing on Air Force One last week, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said she had nothing new to share when asked if anyone at the White House was discussing a new package if the aid dries up this summer. One thing you can take away, and I know many Americans have, is this past year, you've seen our commitment uh, to the Ukrainian people with the aid packages that we have uh, either drawn down or, or, uh, or, or given to Ukraine because we believe the importance of the Ukrainian people having the ability to fight for their freedom. It appeared after the last presidential drawdown of funds to Ukraine, the dollar amount was getting pretty low, around $2 billion. But the Pentagon then said it had made an accounting error, and now there's $3 billion additional dollars they thought they'd spent that are now available. Some Republicans have questioned continued aid to Ukraine, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said Republican majority oversight would mean there would be no blank checks. But Senator Collins said after the May 11th hearing, there would likely be additional aid. It just remains to be seen how much and when a package might be approved. Well, I think a couple of things will happen before that. Number one, we have to get through this debt ceiling crisis. Texas Republican Congressman Michael McCall is the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to um, to Ukraine's uh, future. Uh, the counteroffensive is going to be absolutely imperative and critical. If um, if they're successful, um, and I know that finally uh, countries like UK and France are stepping it up, where where this administration is not, and that is giving them the weapons they need for victory, not not just to survive. If this counteroffensive is successful, cutting off the land bridge to Crimea, for instance, uh, that's going to garner more support from the American people. Uh, they like to bet on a winning horse. Uh, they don't want to bet on a losing horse. And so I think a lot of it's really going to depend on on the success of Ukraine in this counteroffensive. Interesting. So briefly, depending on what I read and where I get um, this information, I'm seeing conflicting numbers. Do we know exactly how much we've spent on Ukraine? I've seen 75 billion. I've seen north of 100 billion. And I understand weapons 
amount to a to a dollar amount. But is that where the discrepancy lies? It's ninety uh, billion total, uh, but it's important to note where that has gone. Uh, about thirty billion of that's gone into Ukraine, um, and a, a large percentage of this has gone into uh, modernizing and replenishing our stockpiles. The weapons that have gone into Ukraine are um, old weapons, and we're using that money to buy new weapons for our stockpile. Uh, also, the uh, NATO, particularly Eastern NATO countries, have have dumped in their old Russian equipment, and so the other third is, has gone to modernize and replenish uh, replenish. Uh, some of these Eastern NATO countries that have put their weapons uh, into Ukraine, if that makes sense. But there's still some concern, right, that we're low on supplies, especially munitions. I know there's been a lot of talk about that, especially in in relation or adjacent to talk of of what might happen with China and Taiwan. Are you concerned about our stockpiles? Yeah, I'm concerned about our defense industrial base, but it's important to note that the weapons going into Ukraine are more land-based and they're older weapons. Mm. The weapons that I've signed off on for Taiwan are new weapons. And that is where the problem is. I've signed off on weapons into Taiwan three years ago that have yet to go into Taiwan. So when I vis- visited President Tsai, she said, you know, where are the weapons I paid for? And mm. when I talked to contractors in the Pentagon, they're telling me, oh, it's, it's going to take another year or two to get these weapons there. So I passed on the National Defense Authorization, a foreign military financing bill that at least we're going to get some maritime weapons that they need. And remember, Taiwan's a maritime uh, conflict. Uh, they need things like sea mines. They need uh, sea drones. They need uh, what mm. called harpoons or anti-ship. Um, <clears throat> and all of that they need now if we're going to have any deterrence against communist China. You know, when I was on the island, uh, I was surrounded by an armada of 10 battleships, an aircraft carrier, 70 fighter jets. Um, and they were wargaming the Taiwanese military. Uh, they were also, it was a stick in the eye to me and to President Tsai. And then they sanctioned me as I as I left the island. So uh, China's getting very aggressive. Uh, but I don't gonna- want the, the misinformation that somehow because we're putting weapons in Ukraine, we can't do it in Taiwan. It's really apples and oranges. We're putting old stuff into Ukraine that's land-based. We're putting new stuff into Taiwan that's maritime-based. Well, see, this is why we talk to you, get that kind of clarity. Back to the Ukraine front, um, we, we, we all heard from the president um, at the G7 meeting that we're going to support an effort to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16 jets. I, I wonder what that means. Does that Are we going to be sending aircraft eventually? And I understand this is part of a group of countries, but... What does the future hold on on sending Ukraine, I guess, additional air resources? Well, you know, I'd say all along, this administration has slow walked this conflict to our to the detriment of this conflict going in the right direction. I mean, they 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 like wring their hands over stingers and javelins and high mars, and they won't put long range artillery in to hit Crimea and the Iranian drones. And so, guess who's stepping up to do that? The UK. I talked to the defense minister. He's like, if you guys aren't going to do this, I'm going to put them in. <laughs> and, and, and embarrassingly, the French are putting in these longer range artillery because this administration is too afraid to do it. You know, the F-16s are good. They've been fighting F-16s for the last two years 
And finally, they got embarrassed enough at the G7 to say, oh, okay, well, it doesn't mean that the United States is going to do that. Just we have to sign off on F-16s going in because we make them. Lockheed Martin makes them. But for UK and other countries to put their F-16s in, uh, they need our permission to do so. And that's all the Biden administration is willing to do. And by the way, it takes at least three months to train the pilots. And I've been urging the administration to train pilots for the last year. Imagine if we, they could use uh, with trained pilots and F-16s in this counteroffensive that's going to happen uh, probably by the end of this month. Uh, what a success they could have. But they've constantly reined it in and one hand tied behind your back. And one thing I do know about conflict, if you go in with one hand tied behind your back, you're going to lose. And, and that's my major criticism of this administration. Hmm. Either you go in, you, you give them everything they need to win, or you get the hell out of there. And then that's where they have failed. And, you know, it's interesting that now, now the Ukraine, uh, the UK is now stepping up to the plate giving them what they need because this administration won't. You use the word afraid. Um, Russia's deputy foreign minister has said that they see this, uh, they see this as an escalation. They, they always say they see everything as an escalation, right? But the, yeah. the jets would be, I guess, a next level sort of thing if we were to engage in that. But it, it, is it an escalation? Are we like, wh what are we doing here? Well, they, they cry wolf, they say saber rattle. I mean, every time they do this, have they ever have they ever done anything? You know, and, and they're not going to use the tactical nukes because China's told them you're going to be isolated all by yourself if you do that. And no one's going to support you. And Putin knows that. So, you know, look, either you give them what do I see as the end result? This counteroffensive is successful. You have a ceasefire and then you try to negotiate an end to this. But if we're, all we're going to do is like slowly dribble in you know, support so that you have a long protracted uh, conflict. That's exactly what Putin wants, because he knows that the will of the American people and the Europeans is going to you know, dwindle. And that's how he declares victory. Um, and I think that's the wrong strategy. I, you know, Jake Sullivan and Colin Call, the DOD and Biden have been so weak. And in fact, the only reason we're in the, this conflict even exists is because Biden was so weak in Afghanistan, projecting weakness invites aggression. Projecting strength promotes peace. What has happened since Afghanistan? Putin has invaded Ukraine, largest invasion in Europe since World War II. Chairman Xi is threatening Taiwan and the Pacific. I haven't seen anything like this since my father's war in World War II. The greatest generation liberated Europe and the Pacific, and this administration, this president is handing it back to dictators that want to take it back. Speaking of Afghanistan, before I let you go, I, I know you're conducting oversight on the withdrawal and you threatened the secretary of state with contempt, even if the department failed to overturn that cable that was issued um, before we pulled out, warning that things could very well fall apart if we did pull out. I understand that since then, state has said you and your colleagues can view that cable. And I want to know if you've seen it. You know, I, I read it yesterday and it's uh, classified, but I can I can tell you that our diplomats on the ground in Kabul at the embassy on July 13th, before it collapsed, got it right. And they told the administration everything they needed to do to be successful in an evacuation. And the administration didn't listen to them. 
And, and that's really sad. Um, they got it 100% right. And, and they warned. They had dire warnings about what was getting ready to happen. And those w- warnings went unheeded because the administration ha- kept having this rosy, you know, scenario that everything was going to be fine, you know, that we're not going to fly off the rooftop like Vietnam. That's exactly what happened. We're not going to leave Americans behind. That's exactly what happened. We're not going to leave American uh, Afghan partners and the interpreters behind, but that's exactly what happened. And then we left the biometrics behind so that the Taliban can go door to door hunting for the very, you know, partners who worked with our military to kill them. It's really a moral uh, outrage to me. And I'm doing this for the veterans and the Gold Star families because they deserve better than this. And they deserve better than the 20 years we put in their blood and treasure than to have this kind of outcome. And guess who's in there now with the lithium mines is China. Hmm. 25-year lease with trillion dollars of lithium. And for all I know, with Belt and Road, they're going to take over Bagram Air, Air Base. That is the end result of Afghanistan. And, and shame on this administration. I understand you have another issue with Secretary Blinken and the State Department, and it's regarding China. Um, you you say there's reason to believe the State Department held back on additional sanctions or export controls, specifically on Huawei, um, the Chinese telecom company, after the spy balloon incident. And you're apparently asking now for documents relating to U.S. policy as far back as, I think, last October. I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your, your concern with specifically with State Department's policy on China. Well, it also goes to an office within commerce that signs off on export controls that I have jurisdiction over. You know, we got a six-month snapshot, and they they sent licenses, uh, $60 billion worth of licenses for Huawei and $40 billion to SMIC, China's semiconductor company. Uh, I got a problem with that. I got a problem that with that. That was in 2021, right? Was that in – that was a yeah, couple of years right. back? Okay. Yeah. And, 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 you know, look, they know I'm watching them and they're stopping this. But when I look at the hypersonic being built on the backbone of American technology or the spy balloon, to your point, having American components in it, we got to stop selling them the very technology that they're using to build their war machine that one day could very likely be turned against us. And that's my goal. This Congress is to stop selling them this technology. Congressman Michael McCall, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, Jared Halpern talks 2024 with South Dakota Republican Senator John Thune. And Ryan Schmel speaks with actor Joe Montaigne about the Memorial Day concert he's co-hosting to honor veterans and their families. Until then, thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.